Welcome to episode number 38 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. Today's episode, we have back on the show, Dr. Chris Bloor to talk about the New Zealand Code of Practice for Handling Combustible Dust. Dr. Bloor, thank you for coming back on and sharing your time with the community. You're very welcome. So those of you that have been listening for the last couple episodes, we had Dr. Bloor on episode 31. We're talking about reconciling hygiene and explosion safety in food handling entries. So this was food hygiene and then explosion safety. And what is the overlap? And we talked a bit about the New Zealand system for combustible dust safety and dust explosion safety. And I really want to get Chris back on to go into that in more detail. Our our kind of tagline or our mission statement for this year is understanding combustible dust as a global challenge, developing global solutions. And part of that is really going to different parts of the world and figuring out what's working there, what's maybe not working, and how we can translate that to the, the other parts of the world. So I'll rattle off a couple episodes we've done already just to give the listener an idea where they can go for this. Episode 10, we talked with Alan Tilsley about the regulation environment in the United Kingdom. Episode 15, we talked about the IECEX system with Michael Merrington. Episode 20, we talked about ATEX um, certification and uh, qualified persons with RPED Veres. Episode 24, we talked about the regulation environment in China with Nicholas Kitzhofer. Episode 27, we talked about the regulation environment and the BDI standards in Germany with Dr. Johannes Lauterman. So in today's episode, we, we have Dr. Bloor on to talk again about New Zealand code of practice for handling combustible dust. If you want to actually get any of those previous episodes, you can go to the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 38. If you scroll all the way down to the bottom, um, we'll have it listed all those previous episodes that we mentioned. We'll get the team to, to go pull those out so you have access to them. So bringing all the way back around to today's episode, we talked a bit about Dr. Bloor's background in the previous show, number 31. He's a PhD and is an industry expert in spray drying applications um, based out of New Zealand. He has 19 years with New Zealand Dairy Research Institute and almost 30 years as a, a self-employed consultant and educator in this space. And we talked about his, his education and training background. We're actually going to record another episode on that for the future podcast episode as well. So that's a little bit of his background. For today, I guess the, the place to start is what are the the regulations governing combustible dust safety and dust explosions in New Zealand, Dr. Bloor. Great, thanks. Um, the New Zealand and Australia share joint standards on most things connected with uh, safety, uh, engineering standards and the like. And so uh, we have joint ASNZS standards, which cover pretty much any topic you can think of. Specifically, back in 1998-99, the two countries realised that there was some fairly interesting work in the combustible dust space happening in Europe and in the US, and the New Zealand and Australian regulations were pretty uh, basic and primitive. So a Standards Australia uh, working committee got together, working working group with under one of their subcommittees got together and started work on developing a, a, a comprehensive combustible dust standard for Australia and New Zealand. And I served on that subcommittee for the three or four years that it met, and it finally published uh, ASNZS 4745 in 2004. It subsequently was updated very slightly in 2012. And what it does is it sets out a, a comprehensive approach to 
dust explosion safety, covering things like the, the overall philosophy, uh, which is one of uh, risk reduction, hazard assessment, some tools for that, safety requirements where, where it's quite prescriptive things can be uh, included, ways of determining whether or not you've got effective ignition sources, some comments on plant design uh, and operation of, of factories, plants uh, that are handling or processing or uh, creating dust, and also uh, covers the emergency management area. So uh, that was uh, an overall combustible dust uh, approach. For detailed design of things like venting or suppression or isolation, uh, it refers to both US and European design standards. So it's not a design standard in itself. It's basically an overarching document that spells out the appropriate ways of assessing hazards, the appropriate standards to go to to design out problems and covers the overall philosophy of safety using a risk management approach rather than a highly prescriptive approach. So that was the, um, the background to that. Uh, in the course of doing that work, we had to establish uh, ways of classifying hazardous areas and there were a variety of international standards um, and we kind of put them together and made sense of them and came up with uh, Zone 20, 21 and 22 as our uh, dust classification areas for the purposes of um, designing electrical equipment, particularly to make sure you don't get ignition sources in places where that might be hazardous. We also covered uh, ways of measuring the dust characteristics that might lead to uh, a hazard and um, uh, the Sources for that were things like NFPA 499 and the very comprehensive BIA report covering an awful lot of uh, materials. In fact, almost every material except the one you'll probably run into when you start trying to do the design. <laughs> but that's that's life. Um, so one of the key issues that we came up with was that the zoning is only part of the overall risk assessment process. It's not enough to just say, well, we've zoned this at such and such, put the right gear in, walk away, job done. It is only part of the overall risk assessment and quite an important one, obviously. We also looked at the difference between dust clouds as airborne clouds and dust layers that might be subject, for example, to self-ignition or that could become a dust cloud where they disturbed by... Uh, falling equipment or um, a door suddenly opening and a draft or people using compressed air blowdown guns, for example, which can turn a comparatively safe situation into a hazardous one in a very short space of time. And if you've got an ignition source nearby, you're in deep trouble. So that was the, the basics of it. Um, and the overall principles included a uh, the philosophy that if you do identify a hazard, then you need to take reasonable and practicable steps to mitigate it or avoid it or in some other way reduce the risk to both operators or staff in a factory and passers-by and members of the public, etc. So one of the key uh, features of this uh, risk-based approach is that if an a hazard is identified, then 
you are given a reasonable period of time to sort it out. In other words, the moment you spot a hazard, you aren't instantly liable to for anything that happens in the next um, you know, few days. Obviously, if you've identified a serious hazard, you'll take some temporary steps to cordon off an area or um, restrict access or uh, train people to avoid the hazard in the meantime while you're going about a long-term solution. So the whole philosophy has been very much one of risk management rather than uh, a very prescriptive, um, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. Yeah, that's a really good background. I think I have a, I have a couple of questions that came up, but I just want to summarize for the, the listeners um, my take on on that, and then you can tell me if I if I got it right. So the standards are combined between New Zealand and Australia. Uh, it's ASNZS forty seven forty five, and it's originally released in two thousand four and has an update in two thousand twelve, and it was really combining best practices from a lot of the other standards around the world. So the design standards for venting, for isolation, the uh, we'll call it engineered protection solutions, those probably came from a lot of different standards, but some of you mentioned were the United States, the NFPA standards and the European guidelines. Zoning, so hazardous area classification, we, we had zone 20, 21, and 22. And then material material characterization we had um, from the BIA, which is the uh, the United Kingdom, and other groups like that. And you mentioned something I want to dive into a little bit. You 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 kind of mentioned that a hazard assessment is not just laying out the zones. So you, I think you the way you put it was something like the philosophy that we we developed. You're not just you're not done once you come up with your hazardous area classification. There's more to it like that. Could you you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, that, that's that's right. Um, the the objective is to have a safe workplace. If you uh, simply zone things and put electrical equipment, for example, in in areas where there's no dust and keep them out of areas where there is, and and then expect the factory to run safely, then you're dreaming. So um, it's part of the overall scheme. It's a, it's an important part, but it's not the end of the game. It's 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 just the beginning. For example, housekeeping. Uh, if you've zoned an area uh, where you, occasionally in an abnormal circumstance there might be some dust, that will get a, a light zoning for electrical purposes. But if your workplace practices gradually degenerate to the point where that becomes a constant um, combustible dust cloud, then you, you've zoned it, but the zoning is actually no longer applicable because your work practices haven't followed the, the zoning. So it's, it's a much more active approach. It's not a let's just tick the box and walk away. It, it's very much a, um, a continuing your work practices and your design of the equipment itself from the point of view of not generating dust and the design of the mitigating equipment uh, such as vents and, and uh, suppression systems and fire extinguishing systems um, to cope in the event that things do go bad, uh, all of that is tied up with the operational behaviour of the staff and the work practices and the incentives and disincentives to workers to do things safely. We've probably all come across uh, incidents where uh, there's a lot of pressure, there's production pressure, there's been some breakdowns maybe, and there are people desperate to get the plant running again, and they cut some corners. And the tragic thing is that most of the time they get away with it. 
and that then becomes the new normal. And then one day, for no reason at all, things just go bang. So we're looking at the entire process of designing, installing, operating, maintaining the, the, the plant to achieve safety. No, I really like that overview, and and it's a it's a really good point. I think this may be overstepping a bit, but the hazardous area classification, and it's just saying we're not going to have ignition sources in these areas, and we'll allow them in these areas, and then we're done and we're safe. That's a bit like we we just we're trying to just remove ignition from the explosion pentagon, if you will, in the areas where you have the other things. Then we allow it in in all other areas where you don't where you're missing another side. But there's still five or there's still four sides of the pentagon that you you need to be concerned about. And then there's human behavior. Um, there's shortcuts. There's what is the what is the stated or documented policy versus what what do workers actually do every day, and how that gets normalized. And um, so there's a lot more to it. I'm happy to see that, that you guys took this holistic approach in developing on the on the behavior side because that's is really the put operational behavior of the staff. Is there actually written out guidance in the the standards themselves that that you know, cover that or, or, or what is the, the philosophy or the recommendations that can kind of be given around that, that, uh, that others might be able to take and learn from in their own institutions or their own facilities? Uh, yeah, there, there is commentary in the standard, uh, but obviously the circumstances of different industries are, are very different. The, ob- there's an obligation on the employer, um, which is a term used in, in a lot of countries. In New Zealand, the term is the PCBU, which is a Sounds like a, a toxic chemical, but it's actually the person conducting a business or undertaking, PCBU. That's the legal entity that's responsible for the uh, workplace. And it might be the, uh, uh, the head of a company, a CEO, or a, a chairman of a board, or um, if, if it's a small workplace, it might be the, uh, just the manager of a small plant. They are legally obliged to maintain a safe workplace, and that safe workplace includes all the various design features of the plant itself, but it also includes uh, maintenance. It also includes workplace practices. Now, we've all um, probably seen uh, a JSA, a job safety assessment, where you have to fill out a, a little thing. If you want to change a light bulb, you're going to use a ladder. You have to fill out a workplace uh, a a safety assessment, somebody has to hold the ladder, um, you have to you know, do the work safely. If it's above a certain height, you have to use an elevated work platform and you can't use a ladder. Um, and so there are a whole series of things. Now, you may have a perfectly good JSA system and there might be forms for Africa uh, all over the place and they're all signed off. Uh, but the guy that was meant to do the lockout tagout hasn't actually got the key to the padlock in his pocket when he does the work and somebody starts a fan up and he gets his fingers chopped off and there's a problem. So the work practices form very much part of the actual practical safety that is achieved underneath the standard. So it does emphasise that um, how you do the job is quite important to safety. Okay, I like that. And I want to kind of go back to another thing that you mentioned uh, that I wrote down a question on, this remediation and phase-in period for changes. Um, I want to touch on that because that's something that comes up a lot on the, the podcast um, in, in in some countries here in North America. Sometimes it seems like you, you 
do a DHA, dust hazard analysis, and you have this list of recommendations. And as soon as that's submitted, the feeling is like tomorrow, these all need to be implemented or else somebody's liable. And nobody's really sure who's liable, if it's the consultant or the person who did DHA or the company. Um, but, you know, as soon as this gets submitted, we're, we, and, and in reality, it's impossible. They need to be implemented one at a time and, and as resources allow. And I'm not saying that you, you should use that as an excuse not to do the remediation because it's needed. Um, but I think that's an important concept. So could we dig into that a bit in the New Zealand system? How does that kind of play out? Yep. Um, a good example of that was the development of the New Zealand uh, Dairy Code of Practice for spray dry safety. Uh, we'd been getting, you know, two or three explosions or fires a year um, and with the industry growing rather quickly and new plants going in, uh, it was getting a bit, um, a bit of an issue. Uh, so what, what happened is that when the code came in in 1990, it had a, a clause in it which said if your plant is going to be shut down and rendered obsolete within five years, you do not have to do anything. Um, if it's going to be in use beyond five years, which many of them, if not most, were, you have five years to comply. Um, and so within five years, and by, in other words, by 1995, all of the plants were either uh, dismantled or fitted with some form of explosion protection. Uh, similar things have applied in other areas. You, if, if a new technology became available, for example, um, when explosion suppression equipment came on the market, uh, it became... Uh, desirable to use that uh, amongst other measures to uh, improve safety but you can't install um, you know 15 or 20 bottles on 100 different plants you know overnight it just cannot be done i've had personal experience in the us of do, consulting with companies who have we've done a dust hazard analysis we've identified uh, the hazard we've identified mitigating measures they have gone to, uh, they've done a design, they've done, gone out, got bids on it, and they've started a, a two or three year program of rolling out these around their factories. Now, the, the, all of that advice is given under client attorney privilege to uh, external attorneys who work with the in-house attorneys for the factories so that nothing's uh, discoverable until the work's completed. Uh, I inspect it and sign it off. And at that point, that documentation is submitted uh, to OSHA as evidence of compliance. Uh, now, it, it, it seems a bit strange to be having to work on a below-the-radar level, um, but that's a consequence of the somewhat litigious system that, that has developed in, in parts of North America. But the, if a company has got... Uh, a plan, a budget, if the board has approved expenditure on a, a one or two or three year program and they are partway through that and OSHA come knocking on the door uh, to prosecute under the general duties clause, uh, they have a reasonably good defence and it's they still go to court but uh, they have a defence. So even in uh, the USA, in practical terms, there is a way of phasing in these if a company willfully refuses to spend anything on mitigating a known risk, then um, they go to jail, and so they should. 
Yeah, I appreciate that overview and it, it helps to hear it. And it only makes sense, right? That things are phased in. It's just a matter of how transparent the whole process is. Um, I like the transparency of when when the spray drying approach went to effect and and you probably after five years, you like you said, you either had the old plants that were couldn't be retrofitted, were not in operation anymore, or if they were valuable enough to be in operation, then they were they were protected. Was that five year clause is that kind of still in place today if a if a facility is found to um, to have a, a known hazard or or lack of um, hazard control or is or is it a different term today or is it still the five years? No, it was a one-off uh, during the implementation of the of the program. Now any new plant has to comply before it'll it'll be allowed to start. So we, we've been expanding our industry and building new plants you know, like crazy over the last few decades. And so each new one has to comply fully. Now, the, there is an issue which we can um, maybe talk about if you like on the updating of codes. The dairy codes are interesting. It's, it's an approved code of practice under the um, New Zealand legislation, which means that if you can show you've complied with it, you have a a legitimate defence in law against prosecution. It doesn't mean you won't be prosecuted, but it means you've got a, a pretty sound defence if you, you say, well, look, we complied with the approved code of practice. Now, for, for a, probably 15 or 20 years, the government was not happy to approve codes because it wanted the right to sue you anyway, regardless. <laughs> Finally, uh, governments have started to see sense in having them approved because if they're approved, it's a kind of level playing field for everybody. If you all comply with it, generally safety improves significantly and it's it's fair for everybody. Uh, and you don't get the sense the government sniping at you um, and picking you off one by one. So um, compliance with an approved code is good. However, the code is now 30 years old and it would be a good thing to um, update it in the light of new technology. But the way ASNZS4745 is written, that's the overarching combustible stand, dust standard for New Zealand and Australia, it requires you to use the current design standards, be it for venting or suppression or isolation or whatever. Uh, and you're free to use European, um, such as uh, the ATEX or um, the VDI or the NFPA standards, as long as you're using a recognised, internationally recognised design standard, um, that's fine. We're not picky about which one you use, but it must be done to a design standard. And it should be the one that's current at the time that the plant's being designed. So you can't just say, well, we'll use a 25-year-old standard because it's, um, it's a bit cheaper. Um, so that, that's built into the standard is that the latest edition of each of these recognised standards shall be the one used. Um, you just can't design a plant on a 20, 30-year-old standard. So that does tend to keep things up to date. No, and that's a good, that's a really good topic because I've I've heard actually a number of people discuss and a number of very knowledgeable people, um, experts in the field, dis discuss this difficulty of, well, say in, in North America, we did implement a um, general industry standard for combustible dust which I've talked about previously on the, the podcast, some challenges with that. And maybe I don't even like the terminology. I'd like some specific entry standards, but that then it goes in and then we don't get to change it. Or it's very hard to change it for 20, 30, who knows how many years. And usually the, the grain handling standards reference from 1980 or so 
and and that's very hard to get that change. So I, I like this cross-referencing. The standard is the maybe the overarching framework, the strategy, the philosophy, and then pointing to the most relevant, shall use the most relevant design standard, shall use the most relevant of the other pieces and, and pointing that through to keep that relevant. I think that's an important point. Um, I did want to save some time because you, you, we talked before on what I think is probably an important topic and, and probably one of the biggest differentiators between how instant reporting might go and how learning from instance might go between um, different countries. We talked about this before and I can't remember the specific name, but um, there's some type of legislation in place in New Zealand from understanding for injured workers, in the sense that they um, are unable to sue directly the company. And then there is, there is a uh, finance put aside to, to help them. But can you maybe walk, I'm not explaining very well, so maybe walk us through that and then have some questions around how that might impact um, both their employer's respect for compulsive death safety, but then also our ability to learn as a, as a community. So maybe just by the introduction part, can you rephrase that in a better way than I said it? Yeah, sure. Um, in 1974, uh, New Zealand gave up our, as, as citizens, we gave up our right to sue for personal injury in return for the establishment of the Accident Compensation Corporation, uh, which is a, a government-run body which recompenses people for personal injury. And that basically took a humongous chunk of income out of the legal profession which was otherwise um, heavily engaged in, in personal um, liability um, litigation. So what happens is that if you injure somebody in a car accident or you uh, uh, have an industrial accident and a worker is hurt or killed, then the compensation is paid for out of this ACC fund and we make contributions to it. I'm self-employed, so I pay both an employer and an employee contribution. If you like, it's a national compulsory insurance system that has been viewed by that by some of the governments over the years. The impact of it is that it is no-fault system. So the compensation is related only to the injury or the cost of medical treatment or the loss of income from the person who's injured, regardless of whether it was a deliberate act or a um, negligence or just a plain accident. So it, it's philosophically quite an interesting thing, and as far as I know, it's unique. Uh, this means that even if you visit New Zealand uh, as, a, as a tourist, you are covered by it. So you can't sue anybody in New Zealand if they run you over in their car, even if you're a tourist, which um, might be a, a, an irritant. On the other hand, um, we don't have a humongous legal profession getting rich off other people's misfortunes. So, you know, uh, swings and roundabouts. Uh, the impact on employers is that the employer isn't directly uh, influenced by the need to settle with an employee they've injured. However, they have, by injuring someone, committed an offence in respect of the, the general duty to maintain a safe workplace. So if, the, um, if the neg there's negligence or, or carelessness or whatever, then the company can still be prosecuted and fined very heavily. And we have 
strict liability uh, whereby even directors of a company are personally liable for this sort of thing. So just because the company has to pay a fine doesn't mean the directors are off the hook. They can also be fined or or imprisoned um, individually. So there is quite a strong incentive on companies to run a safe workplace, but it's not muddy. The waters are not muddied by all the personal injury claims and the weeping relatives and so forth. That's all parked off to one side uh, by the ACC system. And when you consider the economies of scale of having a comprehensive 100% of population coverage of this ACC system, where there's no insurance companies getting rich on a percentage and there's no lawyers involved, um, it's a huge saving to the country. So it's actually worked extremely well and it has not kept the heat off uh, industry. Um, Their feet are very much held to the fire uh, by the um, occupational safety people. So it has worked out very well. So it's a different way of doing the same thing that every country has its own way of, of, of handling it. it it's kind of weird uh, and it kind of works. So um, we're, we're quite proud of it. Well, I'll have to keep that in mind when I am visiting New Zealand on both sides. <laughs> if, I, if I'm if i driving, then uh, it, it may be a plus to me. And I don't know, I'll try not to tick off the locals if, uh, if I'm walking around, but... I, it's an interesting system. Like you said, it sounds unique. It sounds uh, very interesting in the sense of, because it, it, it basically changes the whole landscape of what happens in, in North America when something happens. There's automatically fault put on almost every direction. Everyone's pointing away from themselves. And I'm trying to think of, yeah, it gets, it, it, talk of litigious gets very high and, and it gets hard. It's hard to get information out. So as you mentioned, it, it take care of some of that, but also, if you are negligent, if you are fraudulent, um, if you pass the duty of care, if you don't pass the duty of care, then you can be sued both personally and and the company as well. The the point I want to dig into a bit was, what does it look like after something happens then? Is incident investigation impacted at all by having this kind of system in place or generating lessons learned from these type of, these type of uh, incidents and events that happen or and and maybe we don't know or, or maybe there's nothing to gain there but i'm just wondering if there's from your perspective anything that's uh that can be learned there elsewhere that that's a very good point um one one of the advantages of the system is that there is comprehensive record keeping so we actually have accurate statistics i mean they're very accurate because anytime anybody gets injured goes to hospital or to a doctor or a physiotherapist or whatever all of that is uh, reimbursed by the ACC. So they've got absolutely 100% um, accurate records of what's going on, um, which means that we have accident statistics which are comprehensive and they're not fudged by companies attempting to reclassify things or hide things under the carpet. So we've got very accurate. So we know now that one of the leading causes of death and injury in New Zealand is is ladders working at heights. This has just come out in the last few weeks. Uh, we know uh, what sort of accidents we get on things like farm bikes. And in the old days, we had three-wheel farm bikes and they're banned and we have quad bikes now, which don't kill people quite as often. We have got roll cages on tractors to stop the injuries because we discovered that there were a lot of people getting killed when tractors rolled on them. Uh, We have a lot of uh, injuries in the forestry industry. So we now have 
much stricter standards in um, in logging and material handling, and and that's meant that we can look at robotic equipment um, and justify it on the grounds of lessening workers' exposure. So it's actually driving technical development. So on the one hand, we've got this very good database, which is totally comprehensive and central. Uh, but on the other hand, we've got the incentives for companies to be safe are there because there are uh, penalties and liability and publicity, uh, particularly publicity. The, the, and, and when it's the government public, publicly outing you for being unsafe, there's kind of nowhere to run. So it has actually worked very well. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I had, I hadn't thought of that on the the data and the record keeping, but it must be extensively more developed than countries where this isn't the case because the government's footing the bill for each each broken toe, each you know, each injury that that's sending somebody to the hospital. So yeah, they're they're probably keeping records where other in other parts of the world if the company's paying then um, that's never getting put into a central database combined with the others in in the similar industry. Uh, so that would add for a lot more record keeping, I would imagine, um, from the government side. Yeah, but do remember we're a tiny country of four and a half million people, so there are some um, some benefits in being being small. Uh, it doesn't mean we don't have red tape, though. Certainly. Okay. Well, I, I think that's a great place to leave it off because that was a a really good overview of the New Zealand system. Some of the differences that there are between between the Australian New Zealand regulations and other parts of the world, how it was developed. I mean, the the part I really like of this is that, that you were involved with different parts of that whole development. So getting a really insight, good insight view, um, especially at a time where we're looking around the world saying, how can we improve the, the regulation? Um, how can we maybe harmonize it? It's, it's good to get this insight from people who have done it before, before all those people retire. <laughs> so I really appreciate taking the time for that. Um, in this, in this episode overall, we talked through the standards in general, and then we talked about three different big topics. So this remediation and kind of phasing in period for, for making things safe or making things compliant or whichever way you want to look at it. Um, and hopefully they're, they're actually the same. Um, we talked about keeping things up to date on a regulation side. So some struggles with once you put the regulation in place, how do you get it changed? And then we closed on this, this difference in New Zealand about this this accident compensation corporation, this government-run um, entity that takes care of uh, injured employees or actually injured folks anywhere in New Zealand, um, and how that made change the landscape for things like incident reporting and learning and lessons learned. Um, I just want to say again, thank you very much, Dr. Bloor, for coming on talking through this. We actually have you scheduled on for another podcast episode talking about training um, in, the, in the near future, training around dust explosion and combustible dust. Um, and as always, I really appreciate taking the time to share your, your extensive knowledge with the community. You're very welcome. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Dr. Chris Bloor talk about the New Zealand Code of Practice for Handling Combustible Dust. Um, if you want to learn more about this, this episode, you can go to the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 38. If you want to connect with Dr. Bloor, um, we'll have his contact information there. And if you have any kind of questions or comments, you can leave them there. You can reach out to myself at chris at dustsafetyscience.com. Um, if you're you're interested in talking about what's going on in your country and your region of the world, and you're not, it's not well. Even if you are on the list of the the countries that we've already mentioned at the start of the show, or if you're not, 
it would be great to get your perspective. And especially you were involved in the standards making, especially you were involved in the rulemaking, the codes of practice. Um, it'd be really good to get that included and out there into the community. Because again, we're really looking at combustible as a global challenge and developing these global solutions as we move forward in the year. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Um, I hope you really enjoyed and learned a lot from this episode. And I appreciate the work that, that each of you are doing in industries handling combustible dust every day. Mm-hmm.